You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, if you know anything about doing outlines, this breaks all the rules. You're not supposed to do it this way. Way too many words, but um, it's a good guide and help for me, uh, so that's why I do it that way. Um, Let's begin with prayer. Lord God, thank you for gathering a class that had no registrants to begin with. Thank you, Lord, for our interest in your word and particularly in Genesis. Please guide our thinking now. Thank you, Lord, for the promise of your Holy Spirit. And together we give you thanks and praise in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. The first line of the Bible may be its most controversial. If you can get over that first line, in the beginning, God created... Bara, a unique word for creating, not making, but creating. Creating out of nothing, allowing something to emerge that was not. It ranks right up there in the beginning with the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The concept that I've been kind of dealing with for myself personally is the notion of biblical fusion, of how uh, the Word of God um, is so closely and dynamically intertextual, how it's knit together in such a profound and powerful way. So this first line of Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, makes us think of the first line from the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Genesis is not a scientific textbook. It's not a description of really the, anything scientific about the creation. It's much more poetic than it is rationalistic. or po- It's more poetic uh, in terms of telling a story. And I guess one of the impressive things about, to me, Genesis 1, is that it asks us, where does your story begin? I don't know as if most of us describing our own narrative, our own stories, would begin with Genesis. In the beginning, God. I think that's really the most important thing that can be said about our stories. It's not a me-centered world. It's a God-centered world. And without God at the beginning, as we're discovering more and more in our secular age, it's left to us to define our identity. But as a Christian, that's defined for me. I am gifted with an identity. I don't have to achieve it. I don't have to make it. I just have to receive it. 
And that's a profound, wonderful, reassuring, blessed truth that I begin in the context of an identity that is shaped by God and not by myself. We have 10-year-olds now wrestling with their identity as if the question of gender and the question of purpose and the question of life itself is up to them. And that's a profoundly difficult feat, I think, to accomplish. It's Carl Bart who um, made the point, and I think, I think it's a great point. He said that it's not like uh, everybody can agree on the fact that God created, and then it's another really big step to believe that God redeemed. His point would be you don't understand at all God creator until you understand God redeemer. It's not like Genesis is, as he puts it, the forecourt of the Gentiles, that one can uh, simply identify with God and then later on you add God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He emphasized, Bart did, that it's no easier to accept in the beginning God than to accept in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I'm going to read what he said. Some of you are looking a little skeptical, and I want to give the Bartian purpose here. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. This is his commentary on the Apostles' Creed. When we approach the truth which the Christian church confesses in the word creator, then everything depends on our realizing that we find ourselves here as well, confronted by the mystery of faith in respect of which knowledge is real solely only through God's revelation. In other words, you're not going to believe the first line of the Bible unless you believe in God revealing himself. The first article of faith in God the Father and his work is not a sort of forecourt of the Gentiles, a realm in which Christians and Jews and Gentiles, believers and unbelievers are besides one another and to some extent stand together in the presence of a reality concerning which they might have some measure of agreement. In describing it as the work of God the Creator, what the meaning of God the Creator is and what is involved in the work of creation is in itself not less hidden from us men than everything else that is contained in the confession. We're not nearer to believing in God the Creator than we are to believing that Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So we cannot think that we accept the truth of God the Creator and not accept the truth of God the Redeemer. The two truths are so closely intertwined and tied together because they both come from the revelation of God. So Genesis 1, in a way, is saying, let the story begin. Let your narrative begin here. 
Not in a me-centered world, but in a God-centered world. And that requires, I think, a certain attitude towards scripture. And Eugene Peterson, in uh, his memoir, in his chapter on his seminary experience, describes his changed attitude toward scripture when he went to seminary. I grew up in a Christian home and was familiar from an early age with the Bible. I read it daily, memorized it. On entering adolescence, argued with my friends over it. But quite frankly, I wasn't fond of it. I knew it was important. I knew it was God's word. To tell the truth, I was bored with it. More often than not, it was a field of contention providing material for truths that were contested by warring factions. Or it was reduced to rules and principles that promised to keep me out of moral potholes. Or, and this was worst of all, it was flattened into cliches and slogans and sentimental God talk intended to inspire and to motivate. Many went to seminary. Until now, I and all the people I associated with had treated the Bible as something to be used. Used as a textbook with information about God. Used as a handbook to lead people to salvation. Used as a weapon to defeat the devil and all his angels. And as an antidepressant. Now, incrementally, week by week, semester by semester, my reading of the Bible was becoming a conversation. I was no longer reading words. I was listening to voices. I was observing how these words worked in association with all the other words on the page. And I was learning to listen carefully to these voices, these writers who were writers, skilled writers, poets, storytellers who were artists of language. Isaiah and David were poets. Matthew and Luke were masters of the art of narrative. Words were not just words, words were holy. And he goes on to de describe his inductive imagination with the word of God. And you see, rather than entering into Genesis 1 as, oh my goodness, how is this going to relate to science? Instead, reading Genesis 1 with the sense that this, is, this comes before and undergird science. I really don't see, you know, for myself personally, I think the more of science we know, the more it confirms that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And there's a rhythm to Genesis 1 that sort of sets a pace. Uh, it's not to be so much scrutinized from a critical standpoint, as appreciated from a doxological standpoint, a worship standpoint. Good stories are told. There's an art to telling a story well. Storytellers give us a sense of direction and lead us into the drama. We feel the energy of the plot. They help us to identify with the characters and they keep our emotions in play with the meaning of the story. Genesis 1 and 2 are really positive. 
and they're beautiful. We don't stay there long in the story. And uh, Virginia's been reading through Genesis, and she commented to me yesterday afternoon, really, it's a mess, isn't it? (laughs) And once you get it out of the first two chapters, the human condition is just, it hasn't gotten worse, it just has been really bad. But in these first two chapters, sit back, relax, enjoy the beauty of God's creation. A good biblical scholar by the name of Bruce Waltke says, we must first know how a text means before we can know what it means. And there's the the poetic sense that is within this uh, first chapter that I think is, is so important. And it's interesting, too, to reflect just on the running commentary of Genesis 1 that we find in Scripture, especially in the Psalms, Psalm 8. The Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Um, uh, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Uh, Job 38 through 41, God's response to Job, which is just a beautiful, powerful description of of creation. That's part of that biblical fusion idea. Looking at number four on your outline, let the story begin, number four. We begin in Genesis because the Spirit of Christ makes us into a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Again, I think that the old creation, as it were, and the new creation are fused together in the Christian's thinking. So we don't read Genesis 1 without reading and thinking of 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that we are made because of Jesus Christ into a new creation. It's only because of the mercy of God and the renewing of our minds that we are able to begin at this beginning. It is logical for those who place their trust in nature alone to recoil at the first line of the Bible. The person who believes that there is no God can begin their story anywhere they choose. But for those who believe in Christ, this is where we begin. For by him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. One of the interesting truths, I think, about this is that if God is at the center and the new creation reality is informing our understanding of the initial, original creation, we don't have to feel like we need to defend God. And that thought uh, came out of Makoto Fujimoro's uh, last year's book, in which he, uh, he talks about the fact that, well, this is how he expresses it. 
God is ontologically, that means the whole question of being. God is ontologically and theologically the center of all things. Therefore, we do not have to defend the center. No debate between a theist and a new atheist is going to change the center. The more that theists, those who believe in God, put their, themselves on the stage to defend God's existence, the more we fall into a false dichotomy that assumes God can exist or not, depending on your mindset. I think what uh, Fujimoro is saying here is that you can't get behind Genesis 1. You can't get behind asking questions prior to what God reveals, what God shows, what God demonstrates. And therefore, we have to honestly face the limitation of our knowledge. Parents have no difficulty understanding the limitations of their children's knowledge. In fact, sometimes I think, uh, you know, you, when you've got a grandkid and you realize uh, just what they don't know, and in a way, the, how much they need to know. Well, I, I think that part of the humility of our humanity is to realize that there are limits to our knowledge and how dependent we are upon God to reveal himself. And for me to say, I'm only going to understand what I can understand, what empirically is proven to me, what is rationalistically known to me, that's the limit of my knowledge, the limit of my reason, is to cut yourself off from, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I find it refreshing to know that people don't need my defense of God. God will defend himself. I live into the reality of God. I live into the reality of what he has blessed me with and given to me, and it takes something of the pressure off. You know, there's different kinds of mystery. Uh, I, I really like reading mysteries, uh, the Sherlock Holmes and... Hercule Perot uh, mysteries, I like those, but that's always mystery in dealing with ignorance. Mm -hmm. Trying to discover something or uh, seek out what's already there that I don't know, but it's dealing with the level of ignorance. But love is a different kind of mystery. It's not a mystery to be, in a sense, exposed, but a mystery to be explored. And it's a kind of mystery that, that relational mystery is something that involves us, not in a way that sort of to eclipse our ignorance, but in a way to draw us into deeper and deeper into the mystery. And that's how I see this knowing God. You know, J.I. Packer famously wrote a book, Knowing God, and in that book he distinguished between knowledge about God and a knowledge of God. And so you can have a lot of information about God, but 
it's really knowing God. And I would say Genesis 1 is an invitation to an intimacy, a relationship with God. Uh, not so much, you know, a problematic description of, of how this relates to what science is exploring. Number five on this, let the story begin. To demand full disclosure from anyone right from the outset is deny how relationships are formed. I guess uh, what I'm thinking of here is that how does God begin to reveal God? How do, how do, you, get this, how do you get this story going? How do you start the bio of God? And you realize that this is going to take time. It's a big story. It's going to take years of our life to grasp the fullness of this story. How do you get to know a person? Yeah, it takes time. You have to hang out with that person. And you realize that there's never any bottom to the mystery of the person. Well, this is we're talking about God, and I, you know, I think the personhood of of us is so great and so wonderful, but so far less than the personhood of God. And I, I I'm not getting mystical on you. I'm just exploring what I think is really the the mystery of knowing anyone, but the mystery then of knowing God. Who created the anyone? So personhood is something that God has given to us. I'll continue reading in uh, number five there. To demand full disclosure from anyone right from the outset is to deny how relationships are formed. If the description of God in Genesis 1-1 seems vague, it's not due to any deficiency in God's revelation. It has more to do with our ability to grasp the nature of divine disclosure. Knowing God is not unlike knowing a person. This should not surprise us because the triune God is the person in community from which all other persons are derived. As the apostle said, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. So, thoughts on let the story begin. And you know, we could... boy. We could have a whole series just on this aspect. The second aspect on the outline is the voice of God. Now, it says that, uh, I'll read number one, if we listen to the beginning of the story, we can't miss the fact that the subject of the story is God. Over and over again, some 20 times we hear, and God said, God created, God made, God saw, God called, that's part of the poetic pattern of wonder and worship. But drop down to number two. God wills creation into being. It is intentional, not accidental. It is by design, not default. The relationship between the creator and creation is not explained or analyzed. God created is said five times. God made is said five times. But the verb of choice refers to God's speech 15 times. God created, God made, 
but God spoke. Uh, our God is an essentially vocal rather than visual God. And to me, that underscores because language is the capacity and the ability to relate, both to express as well as to communicate to under, and to be understood. He speaks creation into existence. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He spoke it into existence. When I do premarital counseling, or used to, uh, uh, you know, the, the point at which a marriage begins, it's probably confused in many people's imaginations, but I think the point at which a marriage begins is in the vowed commitment. And this is the one time, I think, where you know, a couple has the opportunity to speak creation into existence. They are speaking this, this marriage into existence when they give their vows. And I think that that, that to me is a, 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 a parable or an analogy to God speaking creation into existence. One aspect of that is that, you know, God didn't have to work real hard. He just spoke. What is in the mind of God becomes uh, our reality. He wills it into existence. Number three, under the voice of God, the climax of creation week is the creation of human beings. And that's preceded by a kind of a Trinitarian dialogue where God says, let us make man in our image. And in the image of God, he made male and female. And again, maybe an analogy would be when a husband and wife said, let's have a baby. Uh, that that relational and intimate understanding between a husband and wife precedes the actual conception. It's a, you know, linguistically, it is a profound but subtle truth that God has this inter-Trinitarian dialogue. Let us make man in our image, male and female, he made them. Uh, I, uh, uh, there's a sense in which uh, Genesis 1, the picture that I have in my mind is, uh, let's say a famous uh, artist is describing a work of art and pointing to it and describing it. And we're all looking at what the artist is looking at as he looks at the art. I guess I could use a real picture, couldn't I? Uh, but then, when the artist is asked, why did you paint the picture? Not how did you paint the picture, or what is in the picture, but why did you paint this picture? 
the natural thing would be for the artist to turn away from the picture and to face the questioner, to face the group, and begin to explain. And I think in some sense that's descriptive of Genesis 1 and 2. God facing us and explaining uh, why he did the picture. Again, it's, uh, it seems like there's so much that one could describe. Um, it took me a long time before I sort of made another connection with the Gospel of John. You have the first lines of the Gospel and the first line of Genesis that tie in so closely. But then somebody drew my attention to the fact that the first week of Jesus' public ministry corresponds to the first week of creation. And I, I, I talk about it in, in this particular book. Um, it appears that John meant for us to draw a parallel between Jesus' first week of public ministry and creation week. Both weeks began with the proclamation, God said, let there be. And the prophet said, I am the voice of one calling in the desert, make straight the way of the Lord. And the two voices are linked. The Lord God, maker of heaven and earth, called the prophet to speak. On the second day of Jesus' ministry, John prepared the way of redemption. Look the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As God made the world, God will redeem the world. The Creator creates out of nothing, nothing but chaos, emptiness, and darkness, and the Redeemer redeems us out of the darkness of sin and death. During the first week of public ministry, Andrew and another disciple stayed with Jesus. Their fellowship brings to mind the experience of Adam and Eve with God in the garden. Maybe you think I'm stretching here, but I kind of think it may have been in the Apostle John's mind that first week of Jesus' public ministry corresponding to the first week to that creation week. The Incarnate One came to restore us to the fellowship first experienced by Adam and Eve in God's creation. The fruit of Andrew's evangelism is reminiscent of God's command, be fruitful and increase in number. The physical and spiritual dimensions of God's blessing were woven together as the week progressed, the circle of disciples expanded, both weeks ended with a memorial to God's glory. Creation week ended with the Sabbath rest, not because the Lord God was exhausted and needed to take a break, God did not need to recuperate on the seventh day. God celebrated Jesus' first week of public ministry and finished on a similar note. And what was the, the celebration of Jesus' first public ministry week? The wedding feast of Canaan Galilee. And how does God celebrate the climax of his creation? The creation of Adam and Eve and the two will become one flesh. So it's, I think the wedding feast of Cana is kind of the climax of Jesus' first week of public ministry, and the creation of Adam and Eve 
is the climax of the first week of the original creation. But remember, you know, this is all in the sense of not the mechanics or the rationalization of creation, but kind of the poetic theological reality of a relationship with the living God. In the garden, which uh, Gilda's service starts at 11 or 11.15? Okay. In the garden, the harmonies of Genesis chapter 1, number 1 in under in the garden. The harmonies of Genesis chapter 1, composed of rhythms of grace heard throughout creation, are now filled with the colorful melodies of human fellowship, responsibility, and intimacy. The story moves from the cosmos to the garden, from the God of the universe to the more personal name for God, Lord God, the God of the covenant. Eden means delight, and it was, as its name implies, perfect. It was a place that lacked nothing but had everything in abundance. There was, a pl there was plenty of water and abundance of resources. The Garden of Eden was not a human achievement, but God's gifts. And again, if we were looking for a source to describe what heaven is like, it would be this as a picture. You know, we're not going up to heaven. Heaven's coming down. And the new creation will be the restoration of all that God intended. It will be, it will be earthy, the new heaven and the new earth. And I think, again, this picture of the Eden Fellowship is a reminder to us that all vocations before God are holy. And that the whole range of work that God has called us to uh, is something that uh, can be sanctified and used for his kingdom glory. There are two trees, number two there, in the middle of the garden, standing for life in God and life apart from God. The tree of life is a metaphor for wisdom, for righteousness and hope. She's a tree of life to those who embrace her. Those who lay hold of her will be blessed. The fruitful tree of life is reward for those who have overcome in Christ. He who has an ear, let him hear. The blessing of the tree of life. Isn't it interesting that there's only one aspect of all of creation that God sets as a boundary? We'll speak more of this next time. But... The full totality of what he's created is open to us, with the exception of one thing. One thing to keep the reality of the creator and the creature in line, understood, and that makes it necessary. Uh, number uh, three, the second tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, stands for human autonomy and a denial of God's san sanctioned limits. If men and women want to usurp the authority of God and reject his love, they eat from the tree that God has clearly prohibited for him from doing so. God's no only prohibits for the sake of our protection. Andre Blocher states, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents ingratitude and rebellion against God's provision, the absurd pretension to abolish dependence 
and the disastrous misuse of the privilege of being freely accountable to God. It represents our deviation into death and the absurd. There's two creation stories here in chapter 1 and chapter 2. In chapter 2, it focuses in, narrows down to more of the, the human dimension to this creation. Number four, the second creation story describes the human impact of creation and offers a poetic picture of intimacy between husband and wife. What began with the transcendent majesty of God, the Lord of the universe, who sovereignly caused the cosmos into existence, ends with an endearing picture of God's concern for our related wholeness. The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. In the past, some have seen the creation of women as an afterthought and used it to defend the subordination of women, but just the opposite is true. Woman is the crowning event in the narrative and the fulfillment of humanity. It's so interesting. I uh, just did a class on Friday on mutual submission in Christ, the relationship of men and women. And uh, yeah, it's so interesting how we kind of take our tradition and impose it on the text here in Genesis rather than allow the Genesis text to kind of create our understanding. Uh, it's not a woman who's created in order to be kind of a useful tool for men. It's just the opposite, that God created a woman in order to provide real companionship and a real uh, fulfillment and necessary for human flourishing. Uh, that's why the woman was created and is the crown of God's creation. Let me close with uh, Psalm 8. Uh, one of my students preached on this text on Tuesday, and so we have kind of worked with her uh, as a class in preparing her for her chapel talk, and she chose Psalm 8, which is a beautiful creation song. And she began by describing, well, let me read it. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? human beings that you care for them. I heard John Stott, the uh, Anglican pastor, theologian, um, when I was in college, preach on Psalm 8. And he underscored the fact that the psalmist sees, he begins by seeing the littleness of man. You've set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you've established a stronghold against your enemies. When I consider your heavens and the work of your hands, what are we that you would be mindful of us? But no sooner does he underscore the littleness of man, the psalmist, but then he emphasizes the greatness of man. You've made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with honor and glory. 
You made, him, you made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and animals of the wild, the birds of the sea and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Abby, uh, our, the student, emphasized how... Uh, to feel that smallness, to feel that littleness, is kind of a Grand Canyon experience. I don't think I've ever met anybody that's visited the Grand Canyon that didn't think it was a lot bigger than they thought it would be. The visual impact of that, and something that uh, you see humans down the trail there looking so small and miniature, you're, expressed, you're impressed with the vastness of the Grand Canyon. That's how she began. But then she concluded her sermon with reference to Eleanor, who's, oh, 10 months old. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies. That the testimony from an infant bears witness to the reality of the greatness of God. And I remember when I held Kennerly for the first time, uh, you just think of Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him, that you've made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with honor and glory? That uh, it's really, really hard to hold a baby and believe in nature alone. Pretty much impossible, I think. Well, I think probably in our four weeks together in Genesis, you can read ahead, but I'd probably prefer that you read behind. Read Genesis 1 and 2 this week and worship. Enjoy it. Rejoice in it. It's not going to answer all the rationalistic questions one might have about creation and physics and the math of our universe, but it will draw you into a relationship with God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now unto him who's able to keep us from falling and to present us before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory and majesty, power and authority, through Jesus Christ our Lord, now and forever. Amen. 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 You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.